Hello and welcome to episode 39 of the Replacement Level Podcast. I'm Ross Carey. Thanks for listening. Feel to be joined right now by David Ardsma. David is a relief pitcher. He's pitched for eight seasons in Major League Baseball. You can give him a follow on Twitter at the DA53. David, thanks so much for taking the time to join the podcast today. No, thank you for having me on. Well, David, let's start at the beginning. Tell me what initially attracted you to baseball in the first place. I always grew up. I was growing up. I loved baseball. I loved sports. My dad would always have me in front of the TV um, watching baseball, and I grew up in Denver and uh, watching WGN, watching the Cubs and Harry Carey and Ryan Sandberg. Um, just really grew up with that. I I didn't have baseball where I grew up, and then I moved to California, and you know, literally was all over the place and. Getting to watch uh, the Cubs every day I walked, I came home from school was perfect. Obviously, baseball for every kid starts out as a recreation. It's playing something that you love and something you would enjoy. How does it actually become something that you do for fun as a kid to something that you legitimately think you can make a career out of? I would say the transition started my sophomore year in high school. Um, that's when that that's when you could tell talent wise. I was starting to put together my, I was growing into my body a little bit. I wasn't the most talented kid, you know, literally middle school, my first, my freshman year in high school, I was, I was actually the last player selected on my freshman B team of my high school. And, and, you know, but I, I always worked really hard. My coaches told me that they said they, they selected me because I worked hard. And, and at the very least I, I had that work ethic to potentially become something. My sophomore year in high school, it started to come together, started playing well. Um, sophomore summer pitched very well. And going into my junior year, I made varsity. And um, that junior summer was where I really made that big leap and uh, started really becoming serious about colleges and made it professional baseball. So when you're in high school, what pitches are you throwing at this point? I was throwing a fastball, forcing fastball, the same, same grip, same way I still throw it now. Um, I think I threw a curveball that I couldn't throw for strikes or, or outs or anything to save my life. And a changeup that was really bad, too. I was pretty much a fastball pitcher. I, I had enough control of other pitches in high school. I, I could throw that curveball down in the dirt enough to get guys to swing. But I, I'd really just beat guys with fastball. And, and I really learned from there how do I have confidence and aggressiveness with my fastball? You were picked in the first round of the 2003 draft by the San Francisco Giants. Tell me what that day was like for you. Oh, it was amazing. It was uh, magical. I, I, we knew going ahead of time, you know, my advisor, um, we, we knew we were going to get drafted high. We didn't know if it was going to be first round or second round, but we knew it was going to be around there. So I couldn't stand being around the the. It's funny to say this at the time around the computer, um, because you know then we you could only listen to the draft online. You couldn't. There was nothing to watch on TV. They didn't make a big presentation out of it. Um, it was just listening to it online, and the draft would literally last. A one round would last about five minutes because each team would just, rat, just name off their picks really fast. So in high school, I didn't get drafted, but. We really thought I was going to get drafted around the around the seventh to eighth round, and afterwards, you know, the teams told me they, they just didn't think they could buy me out of my scholarship to college. So this time around, I didn't want to. We didn't want to go through that whole waiting game and sitting there for a full day and not and not get drafted. So my dad and I left and and washed my car, and so we so we just sat there and waited, and we ended up washing it about four times. 
And it was about 45 minutes after the draft started and still hadn't gotten a phone call. But we knew from listening in, you know, three years earlier in high school that the draft took five minutes. So we're going, oh, God, we didn't pick. What's going on? Something happened. And then uh, then I get that phone call, and and I I guess there was a delay with the draft that we didn't know. And the Giants called me. Brian Sabian called me and uh, let me know. I think it was Brian Sabian or or Dick um, Tidrow called me and uh, let me know that I was drafted in the first round, and it was just – exuberance. It was just amazing feeling. So at that point in your life and in your career, you're a first round pick. What were your expectations of yourself going forward? Nothing but big leagues. There was no question. My expectations was to to make it um, to the big leagues as, as fast as possible and have as much uh, success as possible. I got to the big leagues fast, very, you know, very quickly, um, but I just didn't quite have what it took to stay there. A great fastball, but I wasn't consistent enough with it, not consistent enough with my off-speed. And, uh, you know, it really showed once I got to the big league level how much you need consistent pitches. When did you start developing your slider? You know, I've always – in college, I used my slider, and it was, it was pretty good when it was on. But it was really hit and miss. And, and also, you know, that year with the big leagues, it was the first time – you know, the ball was a little bigger. The seasons are shorter. The ball feels bigger. And so you can't quite get on sliders and off-speed as much as you can with uh, minor league balls or especially college balls. And so it was a, kind of a, a shock. You know, my, my sliders weren't as good. My change-up, I couldn't grip as well. And I went down to the minors, and that was, that was 2004. I was up and down all year, 2004. 2005, when I got traded to the Cubs halfway through 2005, I was down the minors. And... Um, kind of have a little had a little revelation with my arm changed how my arm worked a little bit and got started getting on top of the ball and um really that changed everything was was in double a in 2005 i stayed on top of the ball it was able to get better angle of my fastball better uh, on top of my slider um the next you know next year i started developing my split and being on top of the wall really changed the, the, the world for me. This has been called the year of the Tommy John, which is a surgery that I know you've been through. We'll get into that a little bit. But after you throw the slider, does your arm hurt? A lot of people have linked the slider to increased arm injuries. Do you feel there's a connection there? I don't think there's a connection there at all. I think I think there is a connection if it's only that wrong. You can throw any pitch wrong. But at the same time, back in the 40s, I mean, guys were throwing everything they could up to the plate. 70s guys are throwing junk left and right out the plate. You know, I think if you're throwing it correctly, you're on top of the ball, um, really throwing through the ball and not getting your arm around it to where you're you're not you don't have to throw a slider with your elbow. You throw it with your with your wrist straight down. I don't think there's any problem with it. Plus, you get a lot better movement. What do you think are the reasons or some of the reasons for the increase in pitcher injuries and pitcher fatigue? Now we're getting into it. Now we're getting into it. So I, I, I have a feeling, I have a, a strong feeling on this. And I don't think it's pitch count at all. I think pitch count is um, it's absolutely absurd to believe that pitch count is a problem because in the 70s and the 70s and especially in the 40s, pitchers threw a lot more pitches. They threw way more pitches way more often than we do now. We're, we're at an era where we're actually throwing the least amount of pitches out of any era ever in baseball. So pitch count, that's obviously not it. I think it's intensity of pitches. I think guys in the weight room are a lot stronger, a lot, a lot quicker, a lot better shape. 
And I think when teams, scouts, stadiums, fans started becoming so focused on speed, putting uh, speed guns in every stadium, putting giant numbers on, on the TV, having the, the 97 blowing up the screen, you know, in the top left box, we're so focused on speed and not actual um, the best pitchers. Um, the best prospects for every team are guys that throw hard. So if you're another player in the minors and you want to get moved up to the minors, you don't get a, you don't get moved up as easily as you do to somebody throwing hard. So everybody starts increasing their how hard they're actually trying to throw the ball. So you're you have the same amount of workload, but now you're trying a lot harder on all of your pitches. I think it's the intensity that we've moved up. And in the 70s and the 80s, pitchers, you know, the best pitcher was a pitcher that was able to get everybody out. Now it's the pitcher that can throw the hardest. And so instead of using arbitrary, you know, instead of using, well, this guy's got a great motion, great mechanics, he hides the ball, he gets out. That's the way we used to judge pitchers. Now it's now the guys that can move up to the organization when they get to the big leagues, throw hard. And that's the number one thing everybody focuses on and talks about. And I believe the the focus on speed is the biggest thing. That's the only thing no one's ever talked about is our, our reliance now on speed instead of actual um, pitching. You do put more wear and tear on your arm the harder you throw. You're a hard thrower. Do you think that your speed of that you're throwing puts more pressure on your arm? I think it's the intensity of throwing. Um, speed is, is a byproduct of having you know, good mechanics and, and good timing. I think if I'm up there and I'm trying harder, that's when I start putting myself in the stressful situations. I'm I'm throwing the same amount of pitches. You know, I'm throwing 16 pitches an inning, but one outing I'm I'm just throwing really smooth, easy, throwing good strikes. The next outing I'm throwing as hard as I can. Which one do you think is going to put more stress on my arm? It's the one where I'm putting trying way harder. I think I think you know I think we've just become so reliant on speed instead of actually just going out there and pitching. Tell me about going through Tommy John surgery. I think we take it for granted about the rehab process and about the injury because we hear about it so much, but tell me what it's like actually going through it. It's tough. It's, uh, it's very tough. And then I think people just assume pitchers come back, you know, better um, or, you know, or it's just as strong, but it is, it's not an easy road. Um, I also had hip surgery right before. And I think, I think coming back from the hip surgery and trying to pitch the same speed as I pitched before the year before played a big part in, in tearing my elbow up. Um, you know, I wasn't pitching the same, didn't have the same mechanics, but trying, to, you know, with the same intensity as I had before just wasn't, it wasn't possible. And the weakest point my arm gave, which is my elbow, you know, the, the rehab process is very long, strenuous. What it really is, it's mentally hard because doing the same exercises, same time every day doing the same stretches for almost a year and it's tough you know the big you know big thing is when you start throwing it's it's a huge moment for you you start playing catch again but then you it's very monotonous every day you're throwing 20 throws from this distance 20 from this distance 20 and then you just move up and throws and it's it's a it's a very hard it's very hard mentally so it, it helped me a lot having guys around when i was coming back i was coming back with Joe Chamberlain was there um, rehabbing and that made it a lot easier for me and, and having players around you makes it a lot easier versus just all on your own. What did your arm feel like before the injury, the, I guess the, the 
Did you feel a pop? A lot of people talk about that. Were you feeling fatigued beforehand or did it just sort of seemingly happen out of nowhere? You know, mine was kind of funny. Mine, when I got done pitching, I, I pitched my first rehab um, outing uh, and, and everything was fine. I threw my second rehab outing. Now, the temperatures were very cold when I when I went out. I was in Tacoma in April and it was or, or beginning in May, and it was really cold when I actually got out on the mound. And um, the second outing, when I got done with the game, my arm just got really tight, which isn't – I mean, it was tighter than normal, but sometimes it's – it just happens when you when you use muscles you haven't been using as as strenuous as you haven't been using it as hard. You know it's not that odd to have some. Sometimes you just have some little kinks you got to work through. And then uh, the next outing, same thing, got really tight afterwards, and and the next morning kind of lasted a little bit, but went away. And and so I ended up throwing uh, I believe five or six times on it, and each time just progressively it was getting tighter and lasting longer and until the last outing, it was tight, you know, right when I first started pitching. And and uh, it was just a battle to get through the inning. And my speed was going down, location was going down. So I got an MRI on it. It was partially torn. We decided to rehab it, and that lasted for about a month and a half. And I threw a bullpen, and I was lobbing the ball, you know, throwing as hard as I can, but the ball looked like I was locking it to home plate. And we just knew it was done. I want to ask you about bullpen roles because now we're in a in a situation where every managerial decision is scrutinized because we're obviously in the playoffs and the World Series are happening and we've seen throughout the playoffs that managers have been reluctant to use their closers in a tie game on the road they are only bringing them in in the ninth inning you've been a closer before how important is it for relievers in the bullpen to have specific roles and know when you're coming in roles are huge huge to a bullpen it's huge to anybody it's no matter what your job is you want to know what your job is you know, if you just show up at work and you've got nothing to do and then they just tell you a different task and every day a different task, how can you prepare and how can you become better at your job? Um, so especially as a reliever, when you're going through, through the game, you want to know if if you need to be ready at a certain time. So if you're the long reliever, well, that long reliever mentally is ready from the first pitch until, you know, fifth or sixth inning of the game, depending on, you know, whether it's close or not. And then they can relax, so they don't have to mentally become focused and stretched and 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 you know always be ready to go the whole game, or you're becoming stressed out. You don't know what to prepare for. And if your job's a seventh inning and every day you're ready for the seventh inning, that you can succeed at your job a lot better by having a role. Using guys in roles, I, I truly believe, gets the best out of your players. If if you don't know your job, you're just every day you're you're stressed out. I believe. Last year with the Mets, and you know, 2013 with the Mets, it was um, hard because guys' roles were changing a lot, and we didn't necessarily know, you know, when every day you came to the ballpark, you didn't necessarily know what your role was. So it was tough to, you know, from the fourth inning on, your focus so locked in because you just don't know who's going to pitch that day, and it's it makes your job a lot tougher. And I wonder if that's something that can be conditioned out of, or it might be more beneficial just because of a situation of, I think Matheny said this, said that he, he was in a situation where he didn't bring in Trevor Rosenthal in a tie game in the ninth inning on the road. And I think Trevor Rosenthal is one of the best relievers in the league. Why can't he come in in the seventh inning if the bases are loaded? Isn't that more valuable at times than coming into the ninth with a three-run lead? It, um, that's that ultimate that's that ultimate battle of, um, of the bullpen. It's it's tough to um, to figure that one out. While there are times, there's no question, and you got the bases loaded, 
two outs or one out and you can't give up a run. That That's the game. That's right there. But if you have a pitcher um, that's, that's used to those situations, that's their job. That's when they come in and, and get the get the out, get the big ground ball, the double play, and that's our job. Um, but I, I see the other side of it is if that's a situation, that's when you bring your closer in. But at that point, then he's not your closer. Then you still need somebody to you know to close. You know, if you have a lot of times, I I think the hardest job in baseball is middle relief because those exactly those situations that a lot of times those guys have a pitch that induces ground balls or has a specialty pitch to get you out of those roles. A lot of pitchers, it's tough to throw the ninth inning. It's a lot, it's a lot different of a, of a stress and a lot different of a feeling to pitch the ninth inning. And I've had teammates come to me when I was a closer and tell me they can't, they couldn't imagine pitching the ninth inning, but they were great seventh and eighth inning pitchers. Um, it's just the, it's how you handle stress and how you handle those uh, those uh, pressures. Tell me about, as a pitcher, the relationship you have with the catcher and how it differs as from a reliever to a starter. I think as a as a as a starter, you and the catcher, it's much different. You guys, you have a game plan. You're going in and you you plan it before the game. You you sit down. You go through every hitter and you and you really. Um, it's more of a developmental. Like you you must you have to be on the same page um, the whole time. As as a reliever, I think we come into the game and and when you have a good catcher you, or even any catcher, you have to rely on the catcher a lot more. As a starter, I think it's a lot more communication, a lot more as the game goes. You guys grow together. As a reliever, we need to trust that the catcher knows the hitters and knows what a starting pitcher is thrown to them so we can pitch the opposite. You know, a lot of times, you know, the starting pitchers out there setting the hitters up all game, and then we can come in and, and really, you know, knock them down. Um, so you have to have a great relationship with your catcher, trust in your catcher, and, and to to go out there and especially, you know, someone like Yachty, he throws down a finger and you just you just say yes and trust. I have complete trust in it. Because if you don't have trust in your pitches or your catcher, you know you're 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 scrambling. It's 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 not going to be good. Tell me about the experience of this year. You were in the minor leagues with the with the Cardinals organization. You've been in the major leagues. You spent eight years in the majors. What's it like at this point in your life, spending a year in the minor leagues? It was tough. It, it was um, it was tough. I had a very good spring training. I thought last year I had a uh, a very good um, season. Also, I. You know, for a reliever, I, I thought I did my job very well. I might, my ERA wasn't perfect, but, I, you know, I had just a couple outings where I gave up a lot of runs. Um, I was 19 for 19 with inherited runners, which is pretty important, I would imagine, as a reliever. And so I thought I'd be, you know, getting a good opportunity somewhere. Unfortunately, it didn't work out. I, I had a great, you know, like I said, a really good spring training with uh, with the Indians, but a lot of guys had a great spring training too, so I was kind of the odd man out. Came to the Cardinals, um, pitched uh, twice the last, the very last two days of camp, and unfortunately didn't make the team. And it was a, uh, it was kind of a, a shock. It was, I wasn't, um, I wasn't expecting. I was, I was really hoping to start the year in the big leagues. And it was um, it was tough. It was, it was tough going to the minors and, and ultimately spending all year in the minors. And you know I was pitching very well, right? You know about halfway through the season, and and I ended up getting hurt and tearing my adductor. 
right when I felt like I was going to get my chance to get back up to the big league. So it was, it was a much tougher season than that was I was anticipating. Who tells you uh, after spring training that you didn't make the team? Every organization's a little different, but you know, essentially it's the same kind of setup. Uh, somebody, you know, a clubhouse manager or an assistant GM or somebody will, a coach will, will come and grab you. And, and say, you know, hey, Matheny would like to talk to you in his office. So right there, you know, there you're going to find out something. You're either making the team, making the team, you're getting released, you're getting traded. Something's going to happen with, with that conversation. And you walk in and generally the GM's there or assistant GM, the pitching coach, and, you know, the manager. And, and that's how you generally find out and they, they just, Generally, tell you everything you need to know in that meeting. You are a guy that's been traded a few times as well. You were traded by the team that drafted you, and I'm always curious when you're traded by the team that drafts you shortly after the draft. Do you feel like you're they're giving up on you at that point? You know, they, I, you know, Brian Sabian was very clear when he when he traded me. He um, was very clear to tell me they're making the trade to bolster their Bailey team. So he took away that feeling of being given up on very quickly. Uh, and they were trading for Latoy Hawkins. So for me, in my eyes, if I was them and if I was getting a chance to get Latoy Hawkins, I would have gone for it. I would have taken that chance to trade a reliever, you know, to me and uh, Jerome Williams uh, for Latoy Hawkins. I, I don't, I can't blame them for it. I mean, that was a good move, I thought, for them. Um, but, uh, you know, in my eyes, too, I was getting traded to my childhood dream team. I was a, I was a Cubs fan my whole life. So I was, you know, for me to be traded to the Cubs, it was, it was disappointing getting away from the Giants, but it was uh, amazing. I had so much excitement going to the Cubs. So at the same time, there was somebody else I probably wouldn't hurt a lot more, but um, for me, it was an opportunity. I want to ask you about some of your former teammates and some of your contemporaries. Tell me a bit about Felix Hernandez and his approach. <laughs> his approach, Fifi, man, Fifi is great. I, I, unbelievable competitor. And the one thing that always amazed me about Fifi is his um, his amazing athleticism and ability to just grab a pitch, try something new, and see if it works. And about 99% of the time, it does. Um, I've seen him in bullpens. I, I always loved watching his bullpens. I love watching all, all every bullpen, but especially watching Felix and, and seeing him try something new in a bullpen and then take it to the game was just uh, phenomenal. You don't really see that a whole lot. A lot of times you see pitchers having to develop pitches over time and get a little better and a little better and then gain confidence a little bit here and there. Felix would just grab a pitch and just throw it and um, and then throw it in the game or, or change his motion and uh, do it in the game. And it was uh, amazing to watch. How about John Lester? John, um, you know, uh, always so stoic. Everything he did, always focused. It was almost like when he was on the mound, he was so locked in. Always impressive to start, I mean, especially 2008 with us. Uh, you know, he threw no hitter um, with Boston, and it was just, it was amazing. You could just tell, you could see his talent really coming through that year um, and really coming to the forefront, taking um, advantage of guys having injuries and, and opening them, really opening a job for him. And uh, I always, he was one of those pitchers you love, just, um, well, it's his day because he's going to fight and, 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 and get everything he can, no matter whether it's five innings or nine innings. You know he's giving you every single thing he's got. 
So that year in Boston was 2008. The Red Sox, of course, were coming off a World Series championship. They were in the midst of a massive sellout streak. What was that atmosphere like for you as a player? Oh, awesome, man. So good fans. The fans were so good. Um, they were so excited. I mean, it was like everywhere we went was playing for Boston. We we go down to Baltimore. It's a home game. We we went to you know Seattle. It was a home game. We go to Anaheim. It's a home game. It was so exciting. So much fun. Um, they were so excited from the year before and winning in '07 and and so much fun. But at the same time, we had a good team in '08 too. Um, I, I really think we underachieved for how talented we were and how well we were put together. I thought we could have done a lot more. You know, going to the ALCS was great, and Tampa Bay was a great team, a very a scrappy team, and they beat us. But I felt like we could have, um, if we would have gotten a chance to beat them, if we would beat them, I don't think they were going to doubt we would have won the World Series because we played Philly that year. Philly ended up winning it. We played Philly that year. I think we swept them in Philly. I think there was no doubt we would have uh, we would have just ran through them. We just for some reason, man, Tampa just had our number. Is it weird being a part of a team that wins the championship the year before? They're doing their banners, they're getting rings, and you're just kind of like, oh, what's going on here? I, I remember after the Red Sox won in 04 and they had that historic comeback, they signed Edgar Renneria in the offseason, and they had a huge celebration their first home game, and Edgar's just kind of standing there, and I'm like, what is this guy thinking? He's part of this celebration for a team he wasn't playing on. Um, It was, a, it was really pretty funny. It was... Uh, I'll never forget this. It's funny you brought this up. I've never really gotten to tell a story too many times. Um, outside of just talking to uh, ballplayers, I was in the dugout. You know, they bring out the whole banner. They do the whole thing, just like you said. Like they brought out every player and every, you know, all the a lot of the, all the front house front office guys. I think were all out there. And everyone they lined them all up and you know one by one brought them out. The crowd's going crazy. They bring back. Uh, I think it was when Doug Marabelli was a catcher, and they brought him back. And they bring, um, you know, everyone. It was amazing. It was such a cool experience to see that. And I'm sitting in the dugout with it with me and Sean Casey. And we're the only two guys in the dugout. (laughs) (laughs) It was crazy. There was a 25-man roster, and 23 of them were were all the same guys, or at least a part of it or something. And there's only two guys in the dugout. Me and Sean Casey, we're just looking at each other and laughing. We just at the same time we just looked at each other like, Are you kidding me? Like we don't even get to really get to be a part of this, but it was amazing just to sit there together and just experience it. Well, that would make so much more awkward if they made you be a part of it. Like if they called your name on the PA, you'd be like, "What am I doing here?" <laughs> you know that awkward kind of poke your head out of the out of the dugout like, oh, "I don't belong here." <laughs> uh, but it was pretty cool too. Like that year, um, uh, the Celtics won. During the season, you know, during the first couple months of the season, the, the Celtics won the championship. So they brought on in the, like the the duck boats and did the whole tour, you know, around the whole stadium like before a game, and all the players came out and came out in the, in the dugout and stuff and got to see the trophy and. That was pretty neat, too. Tell me about a guy who was your teammate when you first broke into the league. I don't know how much of an impression he made. Uh, how about Barry Bonds? <laughs> huge impression. Huge impression. Actually, I don't. I liked Barry a lot, and uh, Barry and I actually had a very good relationship together. Uh, this is another thing. That, I mean, not many people ask me about Barry. This is a. This is another one of those questions. It's pretty cool. Um, so Barry and I, uh, I have a tendency which my wife and agent hate. Hate. 
I'm one of the last guys always out of the locker room. I I don't know. I I don't feel like I take my time, but apparently I do. And um and so I'd get done with the game and then I'd do all my work. Well, Barry would also do all of his work after games too. He would he'd always be the last one out after every game. So a lot of the time it ended up me being me and Barry Bonds hanging out. Um we were the only two ones in the locker room. We'd eat together and we'd hang out and talk and watch baseball games together. So we ended up having a great relationship and all the time, um he actually he told me once, I, I'm trying I'm not as scared now. I don't have to face him, but he told me once, he goes, I'll kill you if you tell anybody this. But he would sit there and tell me stuff he learned about pitchers and stuff he learned watching me. He goes, you know, just watching you from the outfield, I see you're doing this. Mechanically, I I think you're not hiding the ball well enough. I think you're tipping stuff. He would help me all the time. He goes, but don't ever tell anybody I helped you. I think Barry always had this. This, this image that he wanted to portray that was a lot different than him personally. One-on-one, Barry was one of the best people I have ever been around. But once he got in the group, I think Barry always wanted to be Barry and, and had to feel like he had to be this guy. So he'd always be louder and talk. And, and I think that was one of the things that probably let him to do whatever he says he's never done. <laughs> was, uh, um, was wanting to be you know, wanting to still be in conversation with those other players or wanting to be something he not necessarily was. And I, I think uh, he was really kind of shy around other guys too. It was, it was just, it was just a, it was a different persona. I, I, Barry and I had a great relationship and it was pretty funny. I have a, I have a picture, a fan gave me this picture and I was so happy a fan took it. I was playing for the Cubs after I got traded. So this was two years after we played together. And, uh, and, I walked up to Barry and said, Barry, what's going on? And he grabbed my hand and then got me in a headlock and proceeded to walk with me all around the, the whole uh, outfield grass in a headlock talking to me and, and bringing me to all the ex-teammates. And there was a, and a fan got the picture of it, and I have it up, uh, blown up in my uh, office. And it, every time I look at it, I laugh because it's just, just one of those moments. Before I let you go, I want to ask you about the World Series. Game two is about to start. San Francisco took game one convincingly. Madison Bumgarner was very effective, very efficient throughout the whole game. Kansas City's bullpen has been great coming into the series. So is San Francisco's. Who do you like in the series and why? So I, I, I said this to somebody on Twitter, uh, I think yesterday or the day before. They asked me who do I got, and I said, you know, I, I personally feel I, 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 I'm rooting for the Giants because, you know, a lot of my ex-teammates and, and guys, you know, you know, grew up through the minors with. Um, I think Kansas City is a more complete team. Uh, they did not play like it the first game. I think um, their bullpen I, I is. I think their bullpen's just unhittable. It's, it's and it's shown they're unhittable. I think um, the Giants bullpen is very good. And I mean, you're 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 slicing. You know, just figuring out which slice is just a little bit better. Um, I think the the Giants starters are better. Um, but I think that, you know, you can't scoff at the Royals starters at all. I think the Royals um, as an entire lineup is a little bit better offensively. Um, I think they can do more things. I think the Giants find ways to win. And, um, you know, I think if you pitch around the guys in the middle of the Giants lineup, you're you're not in as much dangerous situations. Um, and I think the coaching staff, though, from the Giants are, you know, better. So it's almost even, but I think the complete team has to go to uh, the Royals. But, you know, 
and you got to play like it. Does experience actually mean anything in the playoffs? Can an unexperienced team win? Does that mean anything at all? An unexperienced team can win without question. I think I think a lot of times um, with unexperienced teams, it's um, momentum drives you. I think uh, if you're unexperienced, you've never really been in that situation. When you kind of get knocked down and knocked on your heels, you don't really have that experience to rely on. Seems like the Giants that have just been there. I mean, it's been amazing. Their run lately has been amazing. And so when they get knocked back a little bit, they know exactly what they've done in the past. So they're like, you know what? We've been here before. We can do it again. When you've never been there before, you can't say that. You can't go, well, well, we lost in the season. We lost the game, and we came back and won four in a row. It's not the same. And and I imagine um, not having that experience on that level is different. But they got guys. They got buyers. They got players that have been around. It's just um, – you know, in, in general, the whole team-wise, it's a little new place to be. And, and they had so much momentum going into this series, having all those days off, and it really does hurt. Look at um, probably the biggest examples of the Rockies in 2008. You know, they had so much momentum going to the World Series, but I think they had like six days off, and they were playing catch in the snow one day. You can't – everything you had going stopped immediately. I mean, what, when in baseball do you ever have more than three days off? It's, 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 it's a weird thing. And that Rockies team was starstruck, and that did them in, too. They were, like, walking up to Chris Berman asking him for an autograph. And when you're doing that when you're in the World Series, bad things are going to happen. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you, you need to, to be successful and, and, and at, at the highest levels of anything. You need to truly um, – you can't put anybody else on a pedestal. It, it's hard, it was hard for, it's hard for guys. And I, I've had this conversation with a lot of guys I'm training with is you can't put people on, you can't put your competition on a pedestal. A lot of these guys were watching baseball games like, oh my God, watch, um, you know, watch Duffy or watch, you know, watch so-and-so. He's so, so hard. I go, hey, he's, he's taking your job from you. Don't put him on a pedestal. Beat him. Find a way to win and look at him and find his weaknesses and exploit the weaknesses. Because you, you have to compete with these guys. You can't be starstruck. If you want to win, you have to find a weakness. To, if, you, if you think they're the best, then where are you? You're less than that. David, what's your goal for yourself in 2015? Uh, I'm going to make a huge comeback this year. I have, I'm changing my, my training routine. I'm training with um, a new trainer in, in New Orleans um, named uh, Brent Porcio with uh, topvelocity.net. He's a... Uh, He's reteach me how to use my legs and really drive the way I used to drive off my legs when I was throwing 98, um, closing. And, and um, we're finding that when I had hip surgery, I got a lot softer with my legs, a lot slower. And we're really finding my, new, my, my power that I used to have in my legs and my arm and um, exploiting it and really pushing it. And uh, so we're, we're trying new things and getting places I used to be in the, I, I truly believe I'm gonna make a, a huge splash next year and get my speed back. And uh, with my um, experience and knowing how to pitch, I think I can make it uh, make a huge impact. You've been listening to David Ardsma. You can give him a follow on Twitter at bda53. David, thanks so much for taking the time to join the podcast today. That was a blast. Thank you for having me.